Welcome to Global Journalist, a show by journalists, about journalists, and for journalists and those who depend on our work. I'm Trevor Hook, one of the show's producers. COVID-19 has affected all of our lives in one way or another. We can't shake hands with strangers. Walking the aisles of a supermarket leaves us feeling uneasy. The way we live has changed. The way we live and work as journalists has changed too. For some students at the Missouri School of Journalism, it has been an unforgettable process of evolution. At the beginning of the year, a team of students in a convergence journalism class taught by Professors Kat Lucchese and Major King proposed a series of podcasts for Global Journalist. They wanted to cover what they thought was a health crisis that would only preoccupy reporters in distant Wuhan, China. When we pitched this series back in January, we had no idea how widespread COVID-19 was going to be. So back then, it felt like we were covering health reporting overseas. And now there's local reporting on the virus and how it's affecting our neighbors. That was Hannah France, one of the students working on the series. Over the last few months, Hannah and her fellow students have been interviewing reporters all over the world to get a sense of what it's like to cover major disease outbreaks, COVID-19, SARS, and Ebola. They never wavered from their project plan, but executing it became much more challenging, and the stories they were doing became much more personal once the latest outbreak hit home. Student Margot Wagner says she's been changed by the experience. My respect for journalists has grown immensely through this experience. A lot of the situations um, that a lot of people want to get out of that they see deem as unsafe, that those are the places that journalists are going to and traveling to to report and to tell these stories. The students learned a lot about their world and their profession over the last few months. We want to take you with them on their journey in hopes that you might learn something too. It begins with journalism student Catherine Finnerty and her interview with a reporter covering the COVID-19 outbreak in China. Reporter Brendan Hall sets the stage. On February 1st, Yibing Feng began a 14-day self-quarantine in his Beijing apartment after celebrating the Lunar New Year. The Voice of America reporter was worried he might have come in contact with COVID-19, more commonly known as coronavirus, during a holiday visit to his family. Feng understood the risks better than most people did that early in the outbreak. 17 years ago, he reported on SARS, another coronavirus. Although it started in his home country of China, Feng at the time reported from the United States and Taiwan. Being closer to the outbreak, he says, requires him to take more precautions. You just have to take a lot of extra portion when you do your work, even though you work at home. When you have to see somebody at home, you have to ask them to leave some stuff at the door and get a few steps away. A week before Feng's self-quarantine began, the Chinese government placed a lockdown on the city of Wuhan, where the virus started. Feng interviewed people there over the phone prior to the lockdown and said they did not seem very concerned about the virus. I called a resident in Wuhan at the time. They said, uh, we were not fearful. We were not nervous. We don't even wear masks. That's just because at that time, the official media or the government uh, didn't uh, let the people be aware enough. 
you know, of the nature of that disease at that time. It wasn't until after the lockdown that citizens realized the severity of the situation. When people in Wuhan heard about the news, thousands and thousands of residents tried to escape that city just before the hour of the lockdown. Once Fang felt it was safe to end his self-quarantine, he began interviewing people on the streets of Beijing. There weren't many people outside, but he was surprised by how many of them in the heavily surveilled city were comfortable going on camera. People were more willing to talk. I think one of the reasons is because they are also wearing masks. They, they don't fear uh, to be recognized uh, that easily by uh, you know, the authorities. Feng believes the Chinese government covers up the reality of COVID-19 by discouraging citizens in the media from sharing information about the outbreak. This censorship can be done in subtle ways, he says. He offered an example in an interview with global journalist Catherine Finnerty. Some of them were invited to tea. Invited to tea? It means that you got some warning by the police. Feng believes the Chinese state-run media is not reporting the full story. Official media mostly just talk about more positive things, how much effort is taken by the government and how hard the doctors and nurses are working to fight the disease. While those positive reports may be an attempt to distract the public from less happy news, Steve Barragona, one of Fang's Voice of America colleagues who also covered the SARS outbreak, says there is evidence of progress in China's handling of the new coronavirus. It's been amazing to see how much has changed since then. Like the speed with which they were able to identify the virus was just astonishing. But Barragona is skeptical about whether the government is reporting all scientific research. How many cases do they really have? Um, they're still not sharing a lot of information. Uh, and it's it's not really clear whether it's because they haven't been collecting the information or if they're trying to kind of sculpt the narrative for, you know, their own purposes. You don't know why you're not getting the information. You just know you're not getting it. Apart from being able to hide behind their face masks, Fang has observed people are more willing to speak out because they care more about the truth than they do about staying out of trouble. The people who get access to the media outside China, if they know the truth, they just feel it is not right to cover up or to distort the reality. Again, that was Voice of America reporter Yibing Feng speaking to Catherine Finnerty about reporting on COVID-19 in China. Brendan Hall narrated that portion of the episode. That segment was the last show that University of Missouri Journalism School students got to make at the school's Futures Lab and the Reynolds Journalism Institute under normal circumstances on campus. Because by early March, COVID-19 was spreading at an alarming rate in the United States. Mizzou moved to online learning, and most students moved home. That left the convergence students with a series to finish, from makeshift workplaces all across the country. COVID-19 heavily affected my team's reporting process throughout this series, mostly in that it led to our university shutting down, which meant we lost access to the recording booth where we would conduct most of our interviews. In hindsight, it 
challenged us to pivot to new ways of um, getting our message out there, like doing interviews through Zoom, for example. Missing equipment was a constant challenge for the students. Isabella Paxton wrote the next piece and had this same issue. Isabella actually had to self-quarantine after being exposed to someone who had COVID-19. She didn't have access to the sound equipment others had to record their audio. So I want to share a version of the story that I've revoiced, and it's a great story. The students managed to land an interview with one of the most in-demand members of the New York Times staff, the newspaper's infectious disease reporter, Donald G. McNeil Jr. Here's that story. McNeil was alone in the New York Times newsroom a week after Christmas in 2015 when he spotted a clip on CNN about Brazil asking citizens to stop having children. This struck him as particularly odd. I'd never heard of any public official ever asking women to stop having children. I mean, that's just unheard of. He discovered that the reason for the extreme requests was the Zika virus. The Zika virus, if you don't remember, is a mosquito-borne ailment that can lead to microcephaly, giving children who are born with the condition significantly smaller heads and brain development issues. What McNeil thought was a small story quickly turned into a big one. McNeil covered the 2015 and 2016 virus outbreak and later wrote the book Zika, The Emerging Pandemic. I think I wrote a hundred and something stories that year, and the vast majority of them were about Zika. Um, just like this year, practically every story I write is going to be about coronavirus. Back in 2015 and 2016, McNeil was concerned that the public wasn't well enough informed. He couldn't understand why government officials weren't sounding the alarm. The United States government doesn't, doesn't normally issue warnings, warnings that will tank other countries' economies without giving them some heads up. But meanwhile, you know, pregnant women were getting on planes to the Caribbean, and I just thought this was incredibly irresponsible. So, despite all the warnings about this potential virus, some people still believe that they can carry their daily routines or their vacation plans as previously planned. Sounds familiar, right? Well, McNeil was alarmed, and while covering Zika in 2016, he took a really unusual step. He made a plea to his news sources. I called the CDC and said, you know, what's going on here? Well, you know, are, are you this this virus is supposedly spreading? I see other reports that the, that the disease is turning up all over Caribbean islands and things like that. People are going on vacations, including pregnant women are going on family vacations to um, to the Caribbean. Are you planning to do anything? You guys have to put out guidance because pregnant women are calling me for advice and I am not a doctor. I'm a journalist. Linnell Phillips is a nursing instructor at MU and worked for the CDC. She told students that health officials need to balance the public's need for information against the potential for panic. One of the issues with Zika virus is a completely different thing in that it was a vector-borne disease. It was caused by mosquitoes carrying a virus, and it was a particularly affected a different vulnerable population that is pregnant women and their fetuses. Even though the Zika virus affected a relatively small sector of the population, the dangers to pregnant women and their unborn children drew worldwide attention. Journalists rushed to publish articles and, in Phillips' opinion, some of them sensationalized events for views or clicks. It just raises anxiety to the public and, you know, I mean, you, you always worry about causing panic. And then uh, the flip side is that if you don't emphasize it enough, then people will go up about their daily business and, and disregard the, the looming threats. Phyllis believes there's a fine line between chaos and ignorance. 
And she said, reporters have to be very careful with the words they choose and the stories that they run. McNeil's advice to journalists, slow down. I spend a lot of my time thinking about whether I'm projecting the right level of alarm because people pay a lot of attention to the New York Times. Phillips thinks public officials have to live up to their part of the bargain, too. Public health folks need to um, be willing to put ourselves out there and, and have a clear message and a consistent message because, you know, journalists can be our partners in this situation to get reliable information out. McNeil says reliable information is more important than ever. The stakes are higher this time. Again, Isabella Paxton wrote this story. For her version of this story, visit kbia.org. One of the most alarming diseases of the last decade was the Ebola virus. The virus originated in Africa and is infamous for its remarkably high fatality rate and gruesome symptoms. The outbreak ended with more than 11,000 deaths, according to the Centers for Disease Control. MUJ School student Reagan Mertz has the story of a journalist who covered the outbreak when cases started to pop up in New York City. CBS 2's Don Champion live at Mount Sinai Hospital on the Upper East Side for us this afternoon. Don? And Chris, that patient is still in isolation this noon under close watch as doctors wait to get his test results back. The hospital is in constant contact with the Centers for Disease Control. The former CBS News correspondent covered Ebola in the United States. Champion remembers it being an urgent, fast-developing story that fit the urgent, fast-developing 24-hour news cycle of broadcast journalism. This was when the Ebola, the major Ebola outbreak, uh, was top of the headlines, and so... At the time, I was based in New York, so I mostly covered it from there because we had a case or two uh, in New York City, and it was quite interesting just to cover it. Two months later, in November 2014, Champion was assigned a story about a woman who returned from volunteering in Sierra Leone. It may be hard to appreciate at a time when so many people around the world are being quarantined for COVID-19. To put it into perspective, Ebola kills one out of every two people that get it, according to the World Health Organization. Like we're seeing with coronavirus, you know, you have an outbreak of something like this or Ebola, even worse, or coronavirus in a city that's dense and, you know, that kind of urban setting, like it's, it's highly concerning if that happens. And so, you know, you did see a lot of fear in New York. Given the potential for panic, Champion always took pains to reassure his audience. I think in any emergency situation like this, it's it's just you have to be a calm voice of reason and a calm voice of fact. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of fear in the public uh, during situations like this. And even fear that reporters are facing as they cover these stories, you know. Um, so I think that's always the priority uh, in these situations is to be factual and be clear um, and try to not add to the fear and anxiety that people naturally have in these situations. From New York City, let's head down south, 800 miles or so, to Atlanta, the home of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is where Fox News correspondent Jonathan Sari is based. Sari covers public health stories primarily in the southeastern United States for broadcast and print.
When Ebola cases broke out in the U.S., Sari was in the heart of health information because of his proximity to the CDC and Emory University's teaching hospital. I have covered epidemics in other countries, such as the Ebola outbreak in, in West Africa, and we actually dealt with that here in Atlanta because Emory University, right next door to the CDC, was one of the institutions that was taking American doctors who had been infected with Ebola, successfully treating them and ultimately releasing them. When Sari broadcasts his stories, he usually keeps a lighthearted, playful, cheerful, and even joking tone. However, when he reports on viral outbreaks like Ebola and COVID-19, his tone shifts so that he addresses his audience in a calm manner to report the facts. I do try in these situations, I try to keep my tone calm because I, I tend to be an optimist and I believe that you can get out of almost any dangerous situation as long as you keep your cool and as long as you educate yourself about the facts and how you can protect yourself. And so I try not to be reactionary. I try to remain calm. Sari's reporting process changed from Ebola to COVID-19. During Ebola, he had more time to prepare. But now, during COVID-19, he has to be ready to report at all times. There's obviously a lot more interest than there was in Ebola, where obviously we were very concerned about what was happening to the folks in, in West Africa. But for the average American, it was not something that you needed to worry about. And so there's a lot more demand for information. And so I'm doing a lot more reporting. And so I've, I've learned to be a lot more nimble in uh, just staying organized with my, my notes, my facts, so that I can turn on a dime and, and be ready. Social media has made the spread of news on viral outbreaks, well, viral. More popular and widely used since the 2014 Ebola outbreak, social media can be a vector for disinformation. There's definitely a lot of bad information circulating on social media. It's funny that you mentioned that a, a acquaintance of mine sent me this, um, it turned out to be a, a hoax. He thoroughly believed it. And so I very quickly sent the link to that article back to my friend and said, you don't need to worry about this. Don't don't spread this on to any more of your friends because you should always be skeptical when, when friends send you links like this before you check them out. Don Champion also had to protect his mom from being hoaxed. I mean, my mom, like, you know, I talk to her every day and she's like, you know, the other day, I forget what it was, but she had mentioned something about the coverage. I'm like, no, it's not true, you know. So, you know, we all kind of have to take the lead on that and just set the record straight with our loved ones and our friends and people in our circles. <laughs> I feel like we're entering kind of a dangerous period because you're seeing the health being politicized and that's not a good thing. You know what I mean? Like, Science and facts and reality need to lead. Sari agrees with Champion. Stay focused on the public health. We're in such a polarized environment. Every issue becomes political. But as soon as your viewers or readers start seeing everything through a political lens, that's when people get hurt. And so trust the experts. Find those impartial experts that serve administrations, regardless of political party. We're talking about Dr. Deborah Burks, Dr. Anthony Fauci, people like that. Listen to the experts who are unafraid to just give you the data, tell you how to interpret it, and give you unbiased advice 
And that's how you serve your readers and viewers best. My concern is that this pandemic is becoming politicized. Um, we all know people who are ideologues, regardless of the facts. They see everything through a political lens. And those are the ones I worry about because they're the ones who either view this pandemic as fake news created by the mainstream media, or they view the business owners in states that are reopening as greedy. And the fact is the pandemic and the public health threat it poses are very real, but so is the economic impact. And while we're seeing people dying from this disease and getting sick from this disease, and we're seeing people struggling economically, most people aren't trying to get rich off of this, they're trying to survive. Reagan Mertz narrated this part of the episode. end this episode with a look back at the other coronavirus, SARS. And we wanted to pull back the curtain a bit on the kinds of things journalists have to do to get the story out when circumstances are less than ideal. We got a chance to do that in Singapore, where SARS hit really hard in the early 2000s. One of the J-School students, Akhil Hamza, is from Singapore, and when he got sent home because of COVID-19, he volunteered to interview journalists who had covered the earlier outbreak about the lessons they had learned. We're going to play his story, but first, I want to give you a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at how this came together. Welcome to Global Journalist. I'm Akil Hamza, and this is a program by journalists, for journalists, and about journalists. That was a snippet of the first version of the story. Notice how it sounds like he's talking in a really big, empty room? That's what it sounds like when you don't have access to professional audio equipment or professional recording spaces. That smooth, easy-to-listen-to NPR sound that listeners take for granted doesn't come easily. It takes expensive microphones and complex sound equipment and sound booths built specifically to let in as little noise as possible. Akil didn't have access to those tools. So we asked him to revoice this piece, but we told him to use a weird trick that audio reporters everywhere have had to use at one time or another. Throw a thick blanket over your head and take another crack at it. That's what I'm doing right now, actually. Uh, anyway, here's the final version of Akil's story. For Singapore, this is a bit of a rerun. My country experienced a different coronavirus outbreak in 2003, SARS. Journalists here are using the lessons learned 17 years ago to report on today's COVID-19 pandemic. I spoke to two former newspaper editors who share how the reporting process has evolved. In 2003, P.N. Balji was the editor-in-chief of Today, a free newspaper distributed across Singapore when severe acute respiratory syndrome, also known as SARS, hit its shores. Journalists had to take precautions when out in the field, and many worked from home. However, working from home was still a relatively new idea at the time. People weren't in the habit of taking home laptops, so social distancing couldn't be observed quite as strictly either. Our computer boys and girls who were in charge of our computers will come to our homes and provide us with computers and link us to the office. That was how the connection was. The newspapers and the TV stations and radio stations didn't have to worry about the online world. Today, anyone can be a journalist and break the news online. Social media is an especially popular platform for citizen journalists. Back then, Breaking news was a slower process. But managing a newspaper was tough, 
says Eugene Wee, the head of media strategy at Singapore Press Holdings. Coordination was a very big problem. It takes a lot of effort to make sure everything is put together in the paper. Technology didn't make it very easy at that point in time. Fast forward 17 years, and technology has transformed how journalists report remotely in times of pandemics. Interviews are now mostly done via mobile phones or video conference, instead of using landlines. Teams reporting together can communicate quickly through group chats, and editors no longer have to send them individual text messages to relay urgent information. Journalists and their sources are also kept safer, as technology has minimized the need to physically be at hospitals to report. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, press conferences have gone online to maintain social distancing. In Singapore, journalists from different news outlets take turns asking questions live during these press conferences, just through a screen this time. Eugene Wee. Even the briefings that used to be done face-to-face with the ministry task force is also done via video conferencing now. And technology has enabled the government to relay information as soon as possible to the public, making use of social media and messaging platforms to send mass updates. Balji said that this was an improvement from SARS. This time, I got the impression that they were more transparent and quick on the draw with information. The convenience and speed at which information is transmitted means journalists have a crucial role interpreting raw data. In Singapore, that raw data includes the ages and occupations of those tested positive for COVID-19, as well as their recent travel history, both abroad and locally, which helps to identify potential hotspots within the country. And since the names of hospitals where COVID patients are being treated are made public, it makes it easier to track and verify cases. When they give you new sets of figures, analyze the figures to see if there is a trend. Look to a multiplicity of sources to write the story. Journalists need to make data easy for audiences to understand, says Eugene Wee. Break the news down so that it's easier to consume. Okay, there's 10 pages of it. How do I distill this into one page that is very easily consumed by the reader? The job of the journalist is not only to report the news, but to interpret the news. Context is key. Giving context when reporting provides a more accurate picture, as the situation and our understanding of it evolves. Context gives stories background and makes facts easily digestible. It also gives a benchmark for comparison. While car accidents may cause more deaths than COVID-19, for example, that's like comparing apples to oranges. A better context would be comparing it to past pandemics instead. Which is why Balji says journalists should be mindful to not sensationalize the news. We should not do anything to create a panic among the public, which will not serve anybody's purpose. While Balji has retired, he still follows the latest developments in the news daily, except now, he's reading online. The newspaper he used to manage has gone fully digital as well, after it ceased printing in 2017. This was to cater to a growing demographic of readers that preferred consuming their news online and to capitalize on advertisers shifting to digital platforms. Advertisements are crucial to run a newspaper. During the SARS epidemic 17 years ago, Balji experienced that firsthand. As a newspaper, we suffered tremendously because advertisements were being withdrawn and our only source of revenue was money from advertising. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic today, many news outlets are facing a similar problem as advertisers cut back on advertising.
Because of the loss of advertising revenue, journalists are being furloughed and laid off. Some print newspapers have gone completely digital. Others have stopped publishing altogether. But at this moment, journalism is essential. People need to stay informed, and it is up to journalists to inform them. the current and former journalists who spoke with MU's journalism students for this episode. And thanks to the future journalists who persevered through an extraordinary semester. Akhil Hamza, Reagan Mertz, Brendan Hall, Catherine Finnerty, Hannah France, Isabella Paxton, Margot Wagner, Tom Cavanaugh, Jacob Faber, and Caitlin King. Kathy Kiley is our executive producer. Some of the music in this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. For all of us at Global Journalist, I'm Trevor Hook. Thanks for listening.